In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In uh, our pluralistic world, there is, even among Christian circles, or within Christian circles, the tendency to make of Jesus a multitude of versions. It's why you may have heard, and hopefully have heard in some manner, uh, the questions from this pulpit asked in, in some similar fashion like this. What kind of Jesus do you follow? Or who is the real Jesus? The purpose that we ask such questions like this is to cause you, the hearer, to pause in reflections on what ways Jesus has been recast in your life, my life, or in the society we live in. Who do you think of Jesus? What does this world think of Jesus? Today is the first Sunday in our country in nearly 50 years where federal abortion rights no longer exist to terminate the existence of unborn human children. But not all celebrate. Ironically, even some Christians who say they follow Jesus uh, but are not happy with this decision. It is ironic, if not also sad, that they feel this way. Jesus himself escaped a great male infanticide as King Herod hunted him in the pursuit of maintaining his power. If he had it his way, Jesus would never have been born in the first place. The slaughter of the innocents, as you have probably read in the scriptures, uh, is what we call Herod's genocide. And that was Herod's second option to simply Jesus being killed before he would even be born. Herod did not know the real Jesus. And today it seems neither do some Christians who religiously bear his name. This only goes to show how relevant the question of who Jesus is, is. And it is the question that is pushed forward to us in the gospel text today. In truth, while the biblical Jesus remains singular and the same, man is ever devolving inwardly and constantly evolving their perceptions of who Jesus is. And this is in part due to our doctrine of original sin, that fallen men, every person, you and me included, create conclusions about themselves, ourselves, and who Jesus is that are, however, not based in reality, but rather based in the reality we wish to create. In other words, we make Jesus into our image, while forgetting that he was the one who assumed human flesh to recreate us into his. In humility, Jesus became like us in every way except in sin. In order, Jesus does this in order to save us from our own hubris, from our own sinful and faithless distortions of his good and godly love. Christ's love for us, his desire for our repentance and salvation, is evident in his posture toward Jerusalem, as we just heard read not too long ago, that Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. There's no swerving of the head. There's no uh, miscalculation of judgment here. Jesus has his face set to Jerusalem. So Jesus has set his course to die on the cross for sinners, 
choosing to die for us, opposed to dying because of Herod's or Pilate's or anyone else's choice. Now, as with any intentional trip, there are a coordination of things, and a coordination of things that must take place. Unlike our ability to hop into our cars and uh, go wherever our GPS uh, is sending us, messengers are necessary to make preparations ahead of him. Instead of the custom, custom, which is to go around Samaria, as other pious Jews would do, would have done in order to avoid such awful people uh, on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus doesn't look at them in that way. Jesus looks at the Samarians as one that he wants to dwell with, as he desires to dwell with all people on earth. And so Jesus intends to pass through or even remain with them before continuing on in his Jerusalem goal. But the record of events tells us that, unfortunately, they were not received because they knew of his intent to go to Jerusalem, to go to that destination. Unknowingly, the Samaritans assumed that Jesus was like all the rest. So they perpetuated the rift between Samaria and Jerusalem and would not have Jesus remain with them. As Jesus and his disciples then move on to another village, St. Luke records three people who wish to join Jesus in order to follow him. And now, there may have been more, probably there were more, but these are the ones that Luke records for us. Uh, and they're purposely here to illustrate the gospel. In the first instance, unlike the other two, maybe you notice this, Jesus responds to the heart of the man and not exactly to the words of this would-be follower. As if to call out his coveting of comforts, Jesus tells him after he says he's going to follow him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now whether it is that the man wanted somewhere nice to sleep, we cannot know for sure. Maybe he was looking for a nice bed and breakfast along the way. But Jesus' words are reminiscent of his birth where no one would take Mary in. So they had to settle for the stables. Not the best of situations by socioeconomic standards, but nevertheless, Jesus persisted, even from his incarnation until his death, and in the world everlasting as Jesus remains with us. Jesus, when we look at the context of the gospel, is certainly a tough act to follow. And this much is sure, the, the would-be follower is oblivious to what lies, be, what lies ahead, rather, instead of what lies behind. However, the, the other two instances are not much better than this first one. Both of them seem to have reasonable requests. Maybe you were thinking that as you were listening or, or reading along with the, the gospel today, that they have reasonable requests uh, of Jesus, but they are met with unexpected responses. The, the second man uh, received somewhat of a consolation prize, if you can call it that. Uh, he's charged to, to leave the dead to bury their own dead and instead to go with the immediate sense of right now and proclaim the kingdom of God. That would be really difficult for us to do. The third and final recorded would-be follower receives perhaps the harshest response of Jesus since the implication of Jesus' words is to leave his family without any indication of his doing so. 
To him, Jesus says, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Hmm. What is definitely being conveyed here is that Jesus' mission to save the world cannot wait for anything or anyone. He has set his face to Jerusalem, to the place of his crucifixion, to the place of our redemption. Now is not the time for manicured disciples. Now is the time for action, to follow him or not. There is no time for wavering of any kind, even what seems reasonable. Jesus' words are certainly convicting, or at least they should be for each of us. Don't they grab you in a sense? Don't they feel like they grab you and kind of toss you aside? At least that's my reading of the, of the scriptures here. They cannot but grab you and give you the feeling of, of being tossed aside. But not like the selfish ways of the world whose tongue is harsh and ways unjust. No, Jesus' persistence is godly and brotherly. Think of a firefighter who pushes his way through the crowd to get to the fire. It's not that he doesn't care for the crowd, but he cares for them, and he has to get to the place to reconcile the problem before it spreads further and does irreconcilable damage, if in fact he can prevent it. There's another, uh, another way, a significant way to understand the responses that Jesus gives. And it is that each of these responses that Jesus gives to these three men is to cause us to look at Jesus particularly, to look at himself and see how each of these responses actually applies to what Jesus is actually doing. So Jesus, in the first instance, doesn't consider this world to be his home. Uh, he seeks his rest not in this world, but in the tomb. The rest from his crucifixion and from it, the reconciliation through his shedding of blood. Or how about the second person? Jesus mandated the second guy to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. But this is the very thing that Jesus is actually doing himself, doing currently and will be doing through to his death. And we could even say that it's the very thing that Jesus continues to do with the preached word. These are, you know, God's word, and it's preached, and, and it's being preached. Now, I deserve no accolades and only criticisms from you. <laughs> all accolades, all rejoicing, all thanks be to God, go to God for any word preached well and faithfully. There is also in the text here for the second person, a little play on words to leave the dead to bury their own dead. A saying that speaks to, again, our original sin and how we are all dead in our sins and trespasses. Jesus is going to Jerusalem where his death will unbury the dead, giving life to repentant sinners and ushering in the hope of resurrection from the dead on the final day. And finally, the third person, uh, thinking of specifically how it applies to Jesus. In the third and final encounter, Jesus' face set toward Jerusalem is like a man who put his hand to the plow and never looked back. And being fit for the kingdom of God, Jesus goes as the perfect son of God to do what we, poor, sinful, 
flowers cannot do. We look back constantly. We are sinners who cannot help but to make crooked paths, even while we boast of forward progress, all because our heart is corrupted by sin. My grandfather told me the story of his youth, where a line was stretched across our field in order to seed it on a straight path. So not plowing illustration here, but to seed it. Today, my father simply is able to hop in the cab of the tractor and just drive and plow, or plow, but also seed the field. Even at points he gives it, puts punches in the GPS coordinations for the tractor, which amazes me, and plows straight lines, straight rows in the field. The times have certainly changed from my great-grandfather's time, but the straight and narrow has not. Innovation hasn't overcome that ideal, but it has certainly given the illusion that it has been perfected. Not so. My father still complains of crooked rows. Even though it looks like a great ease to the more modern eye, or maybe great-grandfather's eye looking upon my dad, if he could. It looks like the great ease of looking ahead has become less encumbered, more automated. The trouble is that looking back has become more easy and less noticeable, even by us Christians. So the question comes to the forefront again. What kind of Jesus do you follow? Who is the real Jesus, thinking of that Jesus who sets his eyes and face straight on to Jerusalem. These are questions you would think would have revealed, been, you would think that these are questions that would have revealed more concretely and more obviously over time. But in reality, people, even our own brothers and sisters in Christ, are less sure of what Jesus is, or who Jesus is, what Christianity is, or who the real Jesus is. And even more so with those outside of the faith. And so there are many who are poor in spirit. Thankfully, Jesus has come for us who are poor in spirit. Those weak in the faith, and those whom he will bring into the faith. Theirs is the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus preached in his Beatitude Sermon on the Mount. And this is what his face is set toward bringing to completion in Jerusalem. Jesus has his eyes set straight, cultivating the world by grace. So today's message is to take hold of God's gifts of grace, to hold close to us his word and sacrament, and to not look back at our former lives and ways under sin. In Christ, your past is forgiven, and before you is the kingdom of God. So set your face upon the way of Jesus. He has made straight your way to everlasting life. On this way to everlasting life, Jesus is with you, and he has prepared the way ahead of you to the place where true rest is found. In him, a heavenly new Jerusalem of peace awaits those who follow him. That's the real Jesus. So when we daily turn 
away from sin with repentance and faith toward the one who loves us and are filled up with his word and sacrament, we not only prepare our hearts for what lies ahead, but we have in the same stroke the answer of who the real Jesus is. He is your loving Savior. Amen.